What is going on, everybody? This is Tyler here for episode three out of the four in this series talking about COVID-19 and sports. This episode is going to be talking about the sphere of professional sports and the absolute curveball that it was thrown with the coronavirus pandemic. I'll be addressing the current situation and how sport has been impacted, and then using the second part being the fourth episode. I'm sort of combining this topic to cover the last two episodes to talk about the future of sport and how they'll proceed in the long run uh, and sort of how things are going to play out moving on from this ridiculous period in human history, quite frankly. And so leagues like the MLB, NBA, and uh, the NFL as well. So we're going to look at those things and how they've been impacted and what we'll be doing uh, moving forward. So let's roll the intro just like usual and get right into it. The second straight in overtime. Salcido down the alley to the middle. Tromboli in traffic shoots. The freshman. His career start. 12 11 the final. Wow! Seven seconds left. Stotts is going to have to let it fly. He checks the clock. Rice with one. Oh! It's over. Rice to Donahue. Ball game. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are with episode three. COVID-19, and professional sports. We've been seeing the effects of COVID-19 all around us. It's been nearly two months of quarantine. Everyone is wearing masks. People are dying. Hospitals are nearly war zone-like. And it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near returning to normal life. People are ignoring social distancing, going to beaches at the first opportunity to do so. And the news is a jumbled mess. For many reasons. Amongst these stark changes in life is that there are no sports on television. A constant that we are always able to turn to to escape the chaos of life. And other than ESPN and other media outlets' interesting choices of social media content, we really have nothing. It's a new time for everybody, including the athletes, who have essentially turned into NARPs, stuck inside just like the rest of us, with no idea what to do, just like the rest of us. When it's your year-long job, I can imagine that this is especially tough. Probably not as tough as the millions filing for unemployment and many other financial burdens that professional athletes never have to think about, but nonetheless, very different. It's kind of impressive how much the virus has rocked society to the point that it disrupted sports as drastically and quickly as it did. For professional sports leagues who have the top people on their staff for Christ management, crisis management, and health guidelines, to have to react like they did shows a lot, and it really shows how much it has hit us as humanity when something like an established institution as sports has had to come to a screeching halt with no other option. I mean, you see it in plain sight, even just today, May 1st, the day while planning this podcast, with Mitch McConnell pleading to the MLB commissioner, Rob Manfred, that, quote, America needs baseball. 
Some are going to point to the fact that they think the Senate leader wants less attention on the president as we head closer towards this summer before the election, which is obviously crucial. Um, However, I simply see this as a way to try and ease the public. That is growing more and more impatient as our state governors who are pushing for phase one reopening, which isn't quite feasible yet. Uh, This is why you're seeing the White House Coronavirus Task Force having already met twice with the league leaders across sports in trying to discuss business plans to reopen, just as they're trying to doing with real life. But they're also trying to seek the proper solution to resuming uh, the pro sports. The NBA, for instance, next week is allowing teams to practice if their states allow them to do so, meaning that their stay-in-place orders are no longer there and businesses can start to reopen and so practice facilities Uh, can then be opened and staff can be allowed inside. Another summer league that we're familiar with on this podcast, the PLL, the Premier Lacrosse League, was slated to start later this month on the 29th of May. They'll be giving a league update very soon on whether they will further postpone, cancel, or alter the 2020 season. There's also the MLB, who have talks of starting on the 4th of July weekend and even floated ideas about having the entire season played in Arizona alone because of how minutely affected that state was at the start of this virus. However, we know now that it has spread nearly everywhere. Uh, however, however small the amount of cases are in certain states, it is still everywhere. So this shows us not only how ingrained sports are in our society, but also that, in all honesty, they do hold a great deal of power. As ridiculous as it sounds, it isn't far-fetched to say that if sports were to get going as early as they are intending, it could contribute to the stay-in-place orders and ideas of quarantine, because quite literally, people would be less bored. They'd be entertained. They wouldn't be seeking ways to get out of the house. They'd probably still be going out to run errands, but I think that it has to contribute in some way. Not a substantial amount, not that we're talking about solving the issue of social distancing or the issues that are happening from that. But I would like to think that would contribute in some way. Put it, put it in this regard. The small sliver of sports action that we were given was just a week or two ago with this year's 2020 NFL draft, all done virtually. And it was the most viewed draft of all time with over 55 total million viewers, which is up 16% from last year's. That's a lot in terms of viewership for a program. Um, that is, that, that's a drastic, drastic increase. And it's not like much of it changes, given that the in-person viewership is that much like that of a sporting event. It's typically something that everybody watches on television. However, this was certainly a different case with the entire country sitting inside. So who's to say that same effect wouldn't be gluing people to their seats during the days, afternoons, and nights, if sports were to resume. Even NBA insiders were tweeting about the draft, given that they had nothing to do. And another side note I think worth uh, looking at is the draft also raised over $100 million in relief for the coronavirus through their efforts, as well as the Draftathon Live that they held, uh, which I think is absolutely incredible. I mean, that's a lot of money. And we know that sports do things like this all the time and, and um, other major 
you know, companies and, and organizations like uh, to contribute to charitable organizations and obviously the medical field, but this is something else. And I think that also puts a value on what sports bring to people and to society. Another example, the Last Dance docu-series about Michael Jordan and the 98 Bulls, uh, as well as all the other seasons surrounding their dynamic run, uh, has people glued to their TVs every Sunday night, has people all over Twitter, it has talk shows driving conversation and topics, and as ridiculous and repetitive and, you know, clickbaity, to use a sort of new era term here, um, it may make those shows, or those shows typically are, it's still more content and it's driving things for people to pay attention to and talk about and take their minds off of what's going on. Because let's be honest, other than sitting in our house, what else can we do to contribute to the quarantine and to the coronavirus? Um, the answer is really nothing. And so I don't think it's very naive for people to want to be not as bored and uh, rather be entertained while they're having to do so and do their part. Sports do have value, and I think that without them, uh, we're seeing what that value is. Now, just like high school athletes and college athletes who have lost it on their seasons, leagues like the NHL and the NBA were almost about more than halfway through through their respective seasons with playoff pushes and seedings in the works and all that sort of excitement, and then it all came to a close. We're familiar with this story and this timeline by now. The NBA, however, they had a heated race for MVP, as well as a great couple of storylines going on throughout the season, new teams performing very well, surprise teams coming out of nowhere, and really good teams being just as good as we thought. Teams like the Heat literally coming out of nowhere, led by Jimmy Butler and a motley crew uh, of a bunch of other guys I'd quite frankly never really even heard of, a lot of newcomers and and guys that surprised a lot of people. Obviously, the Lakers, for one, out in the West, owned the best record in the conference, and the playoff series between them and the Clippers right beneath them in the standings would have been one for the ages. Considering that they share an arena, too, I don't think you could write something up better than a Western Conference final, given their 1-2 and seed standing, and they meet and trade games going through Game 7 in the same arena, and all those fans together, that would have been something never before seen and, quite frankly, would have been awesome. You also look at teams like the Thunder, with Chris Paul running point guard in that blockbuster trade, um, who everybody seemingly thought was dumping uh, CP3 off to uh, Oklahoma City and that they were going to just be nothing. I mean, they lost a ton of assets in trading for him, and all of a sudden, you know, you see a rookie and some other uh, some other players contributing to Paul's great output as a, uh, the man running the point, and you have them as a, uh, a seven seed, I believe, or an eight seed. And um, and then you also have that Rockets team who just previously had Chris Paul um, and James Harden, who was having another statistically outlandish season, averaging. 34 points per game before the season had come to a close. It seemed like he was having a 40 or 50 point game every other week. And that's something we no longer got to see play out. Who knows what he could have done, points-wise at least, in terms of finishing the season out with a ridiculous average per game. 
To circle back to the Lakers quickly, you obviously can't talk about the Los Angeles team without LeBron James. After missing the playoffs in 2018, for the first time in his career, it seemed that LeBron in this season was destined to be great. And it was. Now that yet another year is taken off the board for James and his legacy, as his time ticks and ticks as he's only getting older, and obviously a championship was certainly in the cards for this year, he's losing that battle with time. He'll be 36 this December, and it feels rather unfair that this ageless wonder not only was dealt a horrible team last year, but was given and developed a fantastic roster and a great record this year, and didn't even get to capitalize on it uh, in that case. Like I said, he's going to be 36 this December. It feels rather unfair that he, the ageless wonder that he is, has lasted as long as he has, and is producing at the rate that he has been. Before the season ended, he was averaging 25 points, 11 assists, and 8 rebounds. We're talking about almost a triple-double per game, something that we only thought... Uh, stat hounds like Russell Westbrook and James Harden and others could go after. Not to mention him shooting 50% from the field. Numbers like that only attainable by centers and guys that man down by the paint. This is a 36-year-old man. All of this not able to be finished out on what was a red-hot season and a fantastic record number one in the West. Now, this is not to say someone like Giannis Antetokounmpo, who had his Milwaukee team to a 53-12 record, the best in the entire NBA, was not also bound for the finals or an Eastern Conference final matchup with someone like Boston, who was also proving to be a formidable opponent. Something that's been talked about uh, with Giannis ever since he came into the league on this Milwaukee team as a young foreign star, and ever since his coming out party, so to speak, as an all-star in 2016, it's been talked about. When will Giannis be an MVP? How many is he going to finish his career with? How many finals is he going to get to or win? And this was that year for him to get into that conversation and start to get that ball rolling and get his legacy sort of, you know, under himself and get it going. This was a perfect year for this Milwaukee team. They were playing at a ridiculous rate in all facets of the game. They, were, they weren't they were just beating teams in those 53 wins. They were beating teams, crushing the teams that they should, handling late-game situations against the good teams that they faced. And they were poised to even get into the 60s for wins. They're, we were at a total of 65. There were 17 games left. Who knows? They could have gotten to 70. Who knows, they could have gotten to high 60s, at least into 60. I think seven more games isn't out of the realm of possibility. And it would have been a fantastic season. We don't see 60 win seasons that often. And if Giannis was able to do that and continue the statistical um, line that he had, which was over 20 points, I believe over over 10 rebounds, um, and a handful of assists comparable to that of LeBron's um, and doing just his his thing in the East. So that was a that was a race we were looking for, an MVP on top of a battle for a finals. And uh, this was finally his year that he put all those pieces together after losing so harshly in the playoffs last year. To switch over from the NBA for a moment and go to the NHL, 
probably the least watched sport in America um, in terms of the big four. Uh, However, the NHL is a fantastic league. They do great things for the fans. And quite frankly, the fans are probably the most dedicated right behind the NFL fans um, and soccer fans. But to switch over to the NHL for a moment, the Boston Bruins, they were on pace to finish with one of the best records in recent memory. With just 12 games left in the season, they could have finished with upwards of the high 50 win mark, uh, just shy of their fellow Eastern Conference competitors, the Lightning, down in Tampa, who last year had a mind-boggling 62 wins. Um, and that was probably one of the best seasons ever. And individually, in terms of the players on that team, Nikita Kucherov won the Art Ross Trophy, had 120-something points. I believe 87 of those were assists. Um, he was absolutely dominant. The Tampa Bay Lightning were a force on offense and an extremely exciting brand of hockey to watch. Uh, and you could have seen something similar to that with the Boston Bruins this year. Um, getting to the mid-50s even possibly, and high-50s, which is just a a few behind that 62 that Tampa had last year. The Washington Capitals, just a season removed from their first Stanley Cup win ever and the ever-so-coveted Stanley Cup for the legend that is Alexander Ovechkin, they were back at it again, top of the East and in the Metro Division at 41-20, and not far behind that Boston Bruin record. Tampa Bay... Uh, Like we mentioned, having that great season last year, they were also in the mix at just 43 wins, right behind Boston by one, dominating, and they were on track to do some damage in the playoffs. They were upset last year, uh, which is the beauty of the hockey playoffs and the Stanley Cup tournament. But a team like Tampa Bay in the mix again, they're back making that run uh, through the playoffs and doing their damage like they did in the early to mid-2010s. Um, as they went to an Eastern Conference Final and a Stanley Cup, um, only to lose. You also have out in the West, St. Louis. After they won the Stanley Cup last year, they boasted the top win-loss record in the Western Conference, and they were second in the entire league, again, right behind the Boston Bruins. They were 42-19, and and they were looking to obviously defend that Stanley Cup, which has been theirs since last June. David Pasternak of the Bruins, as well as Alexander Ovechkin of the Capitals, were tied for first in goals on the season at 48, which is an incredible feat in just an 82-game season of the NHL. Similar to soccer, if you know anything about hockey games, they're not quite high-scoring as many other sports around them in the U.S., and so goals aren't uh, easy to come by. And so to have nearly uh, 50 in an 82-game season is rather remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is that last year, Alex Ovechkin, um, the man that I mentioned on the Washington Capitals, at the ripe age of 34, had 51 goals in the 2018-19 season. And obviously this year, like I said, 48. He's just three shy of that mark again this year, only adding to his legendary career and statistical career that he's had ever since he came over from Russia. Uh, Ovechkin as well, I believe, notched his 800th or 700th career goal, um, or it could be point, excuse me. I'd have to double-check that just only because it popped into my mind. But regardless, um, even if you don't know anything about hockey, um, hearing that kind of number thrown around only gives you an idea about what this guy's 
um, about. And the fact that he's still doing it um, was another reason why it's unfortunate we didn't get to see it play out. David Pasternak, however, uh, of the Boston Bruins, kind of a young buck, sort of coming out of the out of the blue, notched 38 goals a season ago, was in that top 25 mark um, in terms of the list of players, and had the potential to reach 50 just as well, and probably would have. Um, he had a he had a clip of uh, at a period early in the season when the Bruins were just not losing games at all. Um, that he was looking like he was on a, a ridiculously historic pace for goals, uh, but he slowed down a little bit nonetheless. And um, to have that many goals, you got to have assists. And speaking of assists, Leon Dreisaitl of the Edmonton Oilers, excuse me, continued uh, his amazing assist totals throughout his career. I believe he's been in the league for about six years now. He's dish uh, was dishing out 45 or more in the last four years. But last year it was 55 and had 67 through this season so far. Like again, as I mentioned, about 17 uh, or 15 games left in the season. And um, he, quite frankly, would have kept producing. Um, He's already beyond the 100-point mark for the year, which would be his second in a row as just a 24-year-old. And if you want to talk about consecutive seasons his teammate Connor McDavid teammate and line mate Connor McDavid who's a year younger mind you 23 would have undoubtedly finished the season with over 100 points he was sitting at 97 with at least 12 or 13 left to go Um, and this would make um, or that in the case that he reaches 100 would make it the fourth season in a row that he would notch 100 or more points since notching 48 as a rookie he's been in the league for five years um, Connor McDavid is an all-time generational talent. Um, if you don't watch him, you don't watch the NHL, at least look up his highlights and appreciate what he does and what has been doing for the last four seasons because it's outright incredible. It's incredible. Four seasons in a row of 100 points. That's like the equivalent of an NBA player averaging 30 or so points a game um, four years in a row, which hasn't been done often. Um, I'd probably even go as far to say 35 points, uh, because not many guys reach the hundred point mark in a given NHL season. And, um, he's done this four years in a row at just the age of 23. The NHL, just like the NBA has become increasingly so talented and the dominant playoff pool that we could have seen this year, um, before this cancellations happened, Uh, It would have been something to behold, and it really is a shame that right now we could be seeing those things going on, and just like all the other ways that life has been impacted by this virus, sports obviously, as we've been focusing on, is just as damaged. And lastly now, let's briefly discuss the NFL and use that as a segue into the part two of the episode and the topic at hand. So the NFL said around mid-April that they're quote, considering changes that would include a potentially shortened schedule, holding games in empty or partially filled stadiums, and moving or rescheduling games if necessary. However, just hours ago, at the time of this recording, the league stated that they would not be altering any of the schedules and that all 32 teams' full schedules were set to be released within the coming days. Remember, there are 17 games set for this year as a part of the uh, agreement that was made in the offseason, as well as the expanded playoff picture. So this season was essential to the NFL in viewing how 
this impacted viewership and players and obviously just the league um, and season as a whole. But what does an NFL season beginning in September look like? That seems to be the biggest question that even front offices at the NFL are probably asking themselves too. It's truly a matter of time and looking at what the state of the country is at. What's obvious is that there's no written rule that demands the leagues actually play. There's nothing saying that the NFL must happen, except probably society itself. It falls more on the shoulders of the leagues, wanting their seasons to go on, like the MLB pushing for a 4th of July start, and wanting to make their money, of course. But it also gives America something to root for and get their minds off the chaos. And that will do it for this episode, as I did not want to keep going any further and try to ruin what will be the final episode of this four-part series, where we'll discuss the future of sports, the overall impact that COVID has had, and what will have on the world of professional sports. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was, I think, more fun and interesting to look at. Obviously, the scope um, much broader than college or high school but the importance nonetheless there for all the athletes affected by this but again hope you enjoyed looking forward to recording episode four getting that out to you guys to complete this series um and yeah share this with anybody you thought uh would enjoy and be safe everybody peace